Dirt, a Go Loud original. Hello, this is Dirt with Dermot Gavin and... This is Paul Smith. And this week, we're going to... I'm going to tell you a story. He's going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you the most amazing story about a woman who lived in the northeast of England on an estate and something awful that happened to her. And I'm taking inspiration from this story to design a garden. And it's a time of year, you know, when we need to be inspired by stories and we need to, uh, I guess, go away from the drudgery and the not-so-niceness that is the late autumn, early winter time of year. And the thing that is happening at the moment and continues is the obsession with leaves and this whole thing that we have to tidy our gardens and clear away the leaves. So we're going to talk a little bit about that too. Well, something interesting you can do with those leaves. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Dirt with Dermot Gavin and Paul Smith, a Go Loud original. Why is it, as a species, we're so obsessed with tidiness and we just can't help ourselves? You're talking about the, I know it before you even say it, you're talking about the tyranny of the leaf blower. Oh, yeah. Who, on a, if you live in a suburban area or I in know. a city or anywhere where you have neighbours within 50 I know. metres of you, eight o'clock on a Saturday morning, probably a slight exaggeration, and they're all bloody pet absolutely driving the whole... Even that sound you make mad. there is driving me crazy. Yeah, now, it's like that. I have to say I have lovely neighbours and you live in the middle of nowhere, so you've no neighbours. Oh, I don't care about them yet. It doesn't um, matter. And I have lovely neighbours and I don't use leaf blowers. They do, at, I, I live very near, you know, that Avoca outlet, um, the food and drinky place um, in, in Wicklow. They have a big road and they use leaf blowers every day. Des, who is in college with me, blows all the leaves away. They have to, in that case, to keep the paths and the roadways safe. But this idea of people removing every leaf. Now, it's a very good idea to create leaf mould, to compost leaves, to create a lovely mulch for it, but the idea of gardening to as if you were house and bucket. When, uh, Bouquet, uh, when we had a house in Waterford in college, uh, it was a student house in a 1970s estate and next door there was a neighbour. Paul, I've seen your house in Wales and it may as well be your college house. No, the college house was nicer actually. <laughs> <laughs> It had a functioning kitchen, it had ceilings and <laughs> much less damp. Anyway, that's... Uh, didn't have a fridge in the garden. There's a washing machine in the garden. Anyway, <laughs> uh, that's irrelevant. The neighbour next door was a neat freak and he was the husband of Hyacinth Bucket. <sighs> and he would be out every time a leaf fell. Do you know He'd who... be looking through, peeping through the curtains and when a leaf fell in the autumn, he'd run out with his leaf blower, which was also a hoover because it was one of those posh ones. And he'd be... <laughs> And up go the leaves, and he wouldn't allow a leaf. And eventually, all the leaves in our place would kind of spiralize in the yard. And he'd come in every couple of weeks and take them away because he got so pissed off with them blowing back into his garden. He was obsessed with taking away the leaves. It was hilarious. Well, that is the husband of Hyacinth Buka who's been sent out to do that. Do you know who in real life yeah. the son of the husband of Hyacinth Buka is? A really well known gardener, uh, Joe Swift, I the presenter of Chelsea Flower Show. Clear up the leaves. No way. Way. Yeah. Way, way. Ha. <laughs> 
but it's just hilarious this whole obsession with, and yes as you say it's important in places like in public paths and roadways and that to clear the leaves and actually a leaf blower as a tool is very useful in some cases and we used to use them all the time instead of having to rake hundreds and hundreds of miles of paths you could do it in a five minute you know run around but my god it's annoying at this time of year and the obsessiveness is annoying and it lasts for six weeks yeah at a push we have one good wind the end of November and all of a sudden all the leaves are down take them all up and be done with it so our recommendation is leave your gardens a little bit untidy over winter to have habitats for all sorts of other things and also to protect the soil bare soil is no good for anybody no the only place you don't want leaves is obviously on a lawn because a whole load of leaves on a lawn will kill it so if you have leaves on the lawn, push it off to underneath a hedge. Underneath a hedge is a perfect place for a load of leaves because, let's face it, nothing else should or really will grow underneath there apart from a couple of weeds. Uh, put it into areas you don't want. If you are taking away piles of leaves, be careful because often there's habitat. You very often find hedgehogs in them, all sorts of other things. If you do have to take away the leaves, you can make a leaf mould, which is basically just composted leaves. Get yourself a black plastic bag. You know one of those refuse sacks? Fill it with leaves. Make sure they're a little bit damp, a little bit wet. Fill it to the brim. Fill it to the brim. Few holes down the end of it and have a pee in it. You don't need to do the last one. Well, it's very good if you do. you're disgusting. No, it acts as an accelerator. Rubbish. You can just leave it and it'll be absolutely fine. In a year's time, you'll have the most amazing compost you can use to fill up your pots or to use in your garden or whatever. Um, (laughs) Look, we've discussed the dating now. Look what you've done. <laughs> yeah, but there is... I don't understand there, what there, men's there. obsession with peeing other places than the toilet is. Like, what is that about? Exactly. It's unnecessary. <laughs> yes, this is the day of ganging up on Dermot and we make no apologies. Pee in the loo. Pee oh, no more. The leaf blower is the antisocial bit. Not, <laughs> yeah. Not the peeing into a refuse sack out on the road. Or, or your garden. Or in your garden. The neighbours can see you. <laughs> yeah, imagine the neighbours if they see you peeing into the plastic bags. I didn't. Mean, I've just, um, what what did I call it, commissioned, when you get something working. My shower in my garden and my bath in my garden are now working. So I've been having baths outside all the time, every day. He's also got an outdoor loo. <laughs> I don't, I don't. But I do do a pee. No, don't say you pee in the shower. I, no, I didn't say I peed in the shower. <laughs> you did, didn't you? No, no, no. Madonna said that to David Letterman, but I don't. He's nodding. Oh. Dear listener. Oh, you're a horrible lady. Poor listener, more like. <laughs> Poor us, we're here. And you know what I did was going to do? This is the episode when Dermot pees in the shower. <laughs> well, there has to be a reference. <laughs> I just wanted to talk about leaves. <laughs> this has been Dirt with Dermot and Paul. Okay, but do you want to finish your leaf in the bag story or was that done? That was it. That was it. That leave it there. Leave the leaves in the bag if you do accelerate the uh, decomposition with any additive. It could be pee. It could be a little bit of soil that you put in. Uh, kind of six months later, you'll have really nice crumbly compost. Yeah, or a year unless you're... You don't pee. Well, no, a year is more realistic. Six months later is... When are six months from now? November, six months plus is... Uh, May. May. Yeah, early spring, late summer. Late spring, early summer, I should say. Next May, a bit early. Wait until this time next year, you'll have great compost. Really good compost. And just don't be too worried about taking every leaf off. 
Dirt, a Go Loud original. Can you tell me a story? Yeah, you're straight into it. I want, yeah, yeah, there's no point, you know, messing around here. I want to be transported to another era and I want you to paint a picture about something in the past because it's wet, it's miserable outside and it's a nice time of year to dream. So go on, fill us with a great story. And it's probably exactly three years ago uh, on... It's probably exactly three years ago since, on a day so similar to that, that I was at home, which is in Kilmechanic in County Wicklow, and the phone rang in the about four o'clock in the afternoon. And, and it, you answered it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't. I never answered the phone and never listened to messages. And I, oh, God. So there, <laughs> oh, I know. What happened on this particular day three years I'm, ago? I'm was I'm there a... <laughs> Now, this whole story is going to be all fiction after okay. this, but go on, go on. If you're telling us lies I never answered the phone. Yeah, okay. yeah. I must have known it was the National Trust. It was the National Trust in England. A man introduced himself uh, uh, called Mick. So he probably left a message and I rang him back as fast as I could. Uh, anyway, so the National Trust is in the UK and in Northern Ireland. And they are a charitable trust that have a remit to look after palaces and estates and landscapes and in some cases pubs in areas of outstanding beauty uh, are of outstanding importance. Historical sites and also sites of cultural significance I guess too you could say. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the most important places in terms of British creativity and art and culture and... And uh, leisure. They also own huge vast areas and mountain all over parts of the... And the Giants Causeway. Yeah. Yeah, actually, that's a very good point. So, so, so and the the pub, that great pub in in Belfast, what's it called? I can't remember. Opposite the Europa Hotel, you know the one I'm in. So, anyway, the National Trust wouldn't normally be ringing me, and this guy said, "Look, I've a project in mind, and I think you'd be perfect for it." And it was unusual because I garden in the contemporary style. I don't tend to garden looking to the past. Other people are better at that than I am, and I like to be challenged by projects. And their remit isn't to look at the contemporary. Now, probably if Adele passed away or left her estate to the National Trust, uh, you know, at the moment, they might, that would be contemporary. But generally, the, the most recent is John Lennon's place in Liverpool. You know what I mean? So they re- restore it back to the 50s and 60s, the way it would have looked when he was growing up in the Terrace House or, or whatever. So anyway, this lad asked me over to a place that I didn't know about, a place called Gateshead. And first of all, I discovered that Gateshead and Newcastle are on either side of the River Tyne. Two two different cities on either side. Anyway, outside of Gateshead, there was a National Trust, or there is a National Trust estate called Gibside. I went over... And I heard a remarkable story, absolutely remarkable story. The reason for inviting me over was they wanted to tell the story of this estate in a new garden. And it's just just like every other estate, a big old country pile, big house, big garden, you know, huge driveway, all a bit pompous and ridiculous. Or is it... Explain that. Put that in context. Kind of a bit like that. Yeah, um, it, it was built uh, out of town, as I say, on, in a place called the Derwent Valley. Uh, the big old pile is gone. There are its ruins, but there is a big estate, and there are features of a 17th and 18th century landscape. But 
what was amazing, he said, now, look, we've never commissioned in the Trust a Contemporary Garden, and this might be the first time we, we ever do it. There is an area of the garden that we have no plans for. So if we don't have the original plans, we are allowed imagine what might have been. Or we are allowed try something new. We've been given special permission to try something new. And they had this thing called Spirit of Place. And they were thinking of commissioning me to create a garden which told a standout story of the estate. And that's the problem with the National Trust, isn't it, at times? They can be a little bit too preserve the past and not look to kind of develop a garden to the future because while it's great to preserve these places, sometimes they can become very stagnant and just become like museum pieces, but gardens. And gardens aren't really museums because plants grow. And unlike a, you know, Michael Collins coat, which will always be a coat, a tree planted by Michael Collins is going to turn into this monstrous thing and eventually die. So gardens, while they have to be evolving, sometimes can become a bit stagnated by Living museums. Owners. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which can be interesting if you're interested in, you know, social history, gardening history, decorative history, craft history, any of these, uh, any of these things. But I, I am. I'm fascinated by all that, but I don't particularly want to restore something. So... He told me about this principle that they had of spirit of place. And if I could absorb and show that I had absorbed this spirit of the place by replicating it or echoing it in a new design, they might give me a gig. And, Jesus, they proceeded to tell me this. Now, I thought I was going over for a quick run around this place and I'd be on the Ryanair you know, two hours later going back. But well, was, I wanted a five-minute story and we're already ten minutes in, so go on. <laughs> Indulge us. It's because you keep interrupting. <laughs> I'm not. I'm being devil's advocate. I'm being the audience because I don't know this story either and I want to find out a bit more about it. So I'm asking the questions that people might be shouting down the other end of whatever they're listening to. Well, I'm going to tell you the story that really stood out for me. Okay. okay. So, it's an estate. So it's obviously come about because somebody has become wealthy and rich and... It won't surprise you that the family that lived there became very wealthy, uh, extraordinarily wealthy, through coal mining, uh, because it's just north of Newcastle and there was vast uh, uh, quantities of coal in the ground and indeed under the estate. And um, the guy who owned it... um, formed a cartel. So not only did he mine the coal, but he controlled the price of the coal all the way to London. He sent it to London and at every stage along the way he made money. So he became massively, massively um, wealthy. He married, he had a daughter and his wife died uh, when the daughter was, Mary Eleanor, uh, was very young. So he Um, only had one uh, child. Only one one heir. Only one child. And this was in the 1730s, 1740s kind of thing. One heir. And really interesting, if you were brought up in kind of well-to-do circumstances back then, you were brought up to marry well. You were not brought up to be strong, to be educated, to be uh, indulged or whatever. You were brought up to play parlour games, to be able to play the piano and do needlework and that sort of thing. But Well, well this was particularly for women who were born in that era. Uh, really, probably only... only yeah, f- men were expected is to... Aidan, is he going to interrupt with every... Yeah, these are valid questions. Go on. I'm, I'm going to look at you when I'm telling you this no, story. No, look at Paul. 
Oh, well, I'm going to keep looking at you and putting in. So just look away. Go on, tell us a story. So Mary Eleanor is educated, which is for a female back then in those circumstances, incredibly unusual. Not only is she educated, she's made incredibly strong. He, you know, has tutors in, teacher horse riding, game playing, all this sort of thing, because she wasn't the boy. He wanted her to grow up robustly, not to be a frail thing playing pianos. As she'd been growing up, he starts to develop the estate and get in the garden designer of the day, a guy called Switzer, who laid out amazing features in the garden, a mile-long avenue leading down, leading from a chapel to a column of uh, liberty and, you know, all the decorative things. It must have been a, a quite remarkable thing. Nelson's come in London was the only column that was uh, similar to us anyway. And they built a wall garden. They had amazing gardeners. They had whole teams. And Mary Eleanor would watch all this happening and she developed a great love of horticulture and of gardening and um, I did, that idea of sending people to the Cape and collecting plants and bringing them back. And um, she had ideas of her own for the estate. And when she's... About 16, he passes away and she's left incredibly wealthy. I mean, the wealth was just off the charts, all the resources, and she built a, an amazing conservatory overlooking the valley. Really quite remarkable, and she sponsored plant hunting trips. And she got married. She got married to... It wasn't the happiest of marriage. Uh, she had five kids. She had a kind of slightly distant... You know, so many governesses and house in London... Um, Estate up in the northeast, and the husband was suffering from some disease or other. And I think he was an MP, and he was sent away to Portugal where the climate would be better. And on that sea trip, he died. And she was about 36 when he died, when he passed away, leaving her a widow with five kids, probably the merriest widow in the whole of the land because for the first time she was in charge of her fortune and her life. She was in charge of everything. She was she could do whatever the hell she wanted. This big estate, plenty of people to look after the kids, distant relations which were good. And she was a bit of a looker and had plenty of affairs. A bit I suppose a Kim Kardashian type, you know what I mean? Flamboyant, looking at what Marie Antoinette was wearing over in Paris, copying the whole big wig sort of thing, having loads of balls, whether in London, whether up in... Um, interest in gardening, working with... Uh, sending money out to bring back plants, developing these other features on the estate and everything going grand. And she had plenty of affairs and got pregnant a couple of times, but... Um, you know, had, I think, probably backstreet abortions uh, and eventually got pregnant by a Scottish guy and decided, right, time now is to settle down and marry this guy. And uh, John Gray was his name. And um, that was the plan. So husband number two. Husband number two. But then life took a really strange twist. And... Along came a guy from County Wexford. And he was a mercenary soldier. And he was a very good-looking guy, twinkle in his eye. He had been married previously. She wasn't to know that his wife 
had died in mysterious circumstances. And he... Ooh, this is getting juicy. It did get a little bit juicy because he kind of wormed his way in. He did something extraordinary. So this guy's name was Andrew Stoney. And he was from County Wexford, from a good family in County Wexford. And he had worked on a few military campaigns. And he'd married well and he'd been left by the first wife with the equivalent of about a million, but it wasn't enough because he came to hear about this merriest widow in, wealthiest widow in Europe, in all of Europe. Can you imagine, you know, how much his fortune was? And he hit on an extraordinary way of getting her attention. She was a kind of regarded as, you know, the way Kim Kardashian would be lavish spending and he commissioned caricatures. You know what a caricature is? It's a grotesque kind of cartoon. And he commissioned one of these caricatures lampooning her lifestyle. He commissioned them, sent them into what became the Daily Telegraph, printed in the paper, taken from the newspaper, pasted on the windows of coffee houses, people would gather around and she became a bit of a laughingstock. But he commissioned them under an assumed name. And every he commissioned one and then a second and then a third and he commissioned, I think, five in total. And she became an absolute laughingstock. But every time they were published, he wrote to the editor under his own name and said, how very dare you. This is a virtuous woman who's a great sponsor of the arts and a plant hunter and an extraordinary scientist and she's doing great things and how dare you uh, print these horrendous cartoons. And every time, under one name, he'd commission it, under the second name, he'd... And what was she thinking about all this? She didn't know what to think, but her life was kind of spiralling. She was heavily pregnant. She was in bits. This was kind of like the original trolling. That's exactly what it was. It was the original trolling. And most people nowadays go onto Tinder, but he seemed to do it totally different. Well, he did it using the the, the printing press, the technology of the the time. Eventually, after the fifth appearance of one of these cartoons, he wrote to the editor and said, I demand that you stop and... I demand satisfaction because this woman is... So he looked for a jewel. And the editor of the newspaper had to... If he was a gentleman, he had to reply in kind. And the jewel took place in the downstairs room. You don't believe this? That's brilliant. It's true, though. It's it's all absolutely true. (laughs) The jewel took place in the downstairs room of an alehouse in Piccadilly in London, again on a gloomy evening. And... Our friend from Wexford, Andrew Sony, was shot. And um, Mary Eleanor, who was in town, heard this story. And she knew of him, but she didn't really know him. She knew he was a bit of a jack the lad around town. But she was really confused by this. And she was kind of bereft. And she ran to his bedside. He was carted off to hospital. She ran to his bedside and she was overcome, absolutely overcome with grief. And she said to him, and he was, you know, in his last few breaths, the doctor was beside him saying he has maybe a day left, but he's lost so much blood, there is no hope for this guy. And she said to him, every other guy I've known has wanted one or two things, sex or money from me, and you have asked for nothing and you have defended my honour, and for that you have given your life. And she said, do you have parents I can look after? Do you have children? What can I do? And he got a few words out. And the words were, send me 
to my maker, the most happiest and content man in the land, become my wife. She's utterly shocked by this, but what can she do? He's given his, his life for her. And the following day, she finds herself in the church, at the altar, heavily pregnant by another, engaged to another guy. Stoney is brought in on a stretcher and they become man and wife and he's carted off back to the hospital and she goes back to her house in Brook Street in Mayfair and what has she done? A few hours later there's a knock on the door and I think it's Stoney's friends and then it's Stoney demanding entry. It had all been a ruse. It had been pig's blood. The doctor had been, the physician had been in his pay and he owned her and he owned everything. Everything. Absolutely everything. She was his wife. She was pregnant with another man's child and off they went up to Gibside and he was a bousy and a drunk and a gambler and whatever and they partied and they got up to all sorts and they gambled and they had balls and they got banned and he ruined the estate over years and years and years and he began to and they had a they had that child which he took on as his own and then they she was pregnant again with his child and uh, and whatever and he treated her so badly so he was after total her. and utter con he was the worst type of con because he was pure not only was he a con this guy was pure evil and he had got everything. But his downfall was that he was a drinker and a gambler and he ruined everything. He ruined the estate and he started accusing her of having affairs. He, he accused her of having an affair with 70-year-old gardener on the estate with no... T- and he ended up banning her from her gardens, first of all, which absolutely destroyed her because this was the thing that she really loved. She loved her gardens and he ended up locking her in a cupboard and he ended up raping her and Eventually, after years of this, um, you know, people were coming knocking on the door because he had completely spent everything. And, you know, they owed money. They couldn't pay their debts and whatever. And after a few years, with the help of some servants, she escaped. And he pursued her and he pursued her. And he pers- and eventually he got her and he beat her and he raped her and he imprisoned her back at the house. Uh, just the most. And she lived in rags then. Even the servants in the house were dressed better than she was. After another while, she escaped again. And she escaped this time to London and he tried to pursue her. But this was where the remarkable part of the story and her father's idea of how to bring up a girl as if she was a a, a son really kicked in. Because she had been made strong and she had also been given an education and she knew a little bit about the law. And she became the first woman ever to win back or to go to court. And he, the stories that he spun were just incredible, uh, just amazing, the stories. And he was swaying the court one way and the whole of public opinion in London and in in Britain, where he was an MP at this stage, where, you know, on his side and then on her side and then on her. But eventually she won and he was carted off to a debtor's prison. She never went back to Gibside. It went on to her son and she went down to the south of England and lived in a simpler house with Mary, her servant, who had helped her escape. Isn't that amazing? Mad. And so... What? And it, it becomes even more amazing because then her 
dad had made sure that whoever she married would take the family name on. And um, her her name was... So this Bowsey from Wexford took be, the name? Took the name. The first husband had to take the name. Uh, the second husband had to take the name. And the name went on. So her name was Mary Eleanor Bow. So he became Stony Bow. And we know Stony Bro now as that expression, Stony Broke. And even more amazing, she ended up in 1971, or a depiction of her ended up on the front cover of Time magazine because a renowned filmmaker, Stanley Kubrick, made a movie about him, about Stony, called Barry Lyndon. I was about to say, how is this not like an Oscar winning film? Like, this is such an incredible story. It it became, but the story's about him rather than her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you see, God, yeah, so it's really weird. So I'm sent back. Remember, I've gone over to see this estate, and I've heard a story about Mary Ellen or Bo, and I've come back uh, on my Ryanair to, uh, and I've been given this movie to watch. I've been given a DVD to to watch this movie, and it's full of uh, God rest Paddy Maloney, but it's full of very dreary shift in music, and I, I'm watching this. I'm watching this movie and I'm watching Gibside and I'm watching the the whole movie was filmed by Do you know where Gibside was in the movie? Powers Court in Enniscary, five minutes from my house. So the hairs on the back of my neck were absolutely sad because I understood the landscape. I understood uh, everything about it. And uh, I think, yeah, nominated for Oscars and everything like that. It was really quite extraordinary. But Mary Eleanor ended up if only she'd known, been the great, 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 great grandmother, Queen Elizabeth. Explain that. Bowlines. The estate passed through the generations until eventually it ended up in the family of the Queen Mum, who gave the keys to the National Trust after calling in the RAF to bomb the, as target practice, to bomb the house. What? Yeah. <laughs> Shoot that, will you? <laughs> I think so. I think so. And you know, the the family retain a link with, um, and occasionally visit uh, Charles, especially um, the the house. Isn't that amazing? Weird. It's incredible. Yeah, like you said, there's an Oscar movie in that about her life and all the stuff that she went through. So, but how do you tell that story by means of a garden? That's for next week. Yeah. Really? Don't you wait till next week? Yeah. Aww. Dirt with Dermot Gavin and Paul Smith. A Go Loud original. What did you think of Mary Eleanor's story? Aideen touched on it. It's like Hollywood blockbuster kind of thing. It's extraordinary. It really is. I think you made part of it up. No, I didn't. (laughs) Everything, Everything I said is true and there's so much more. But I tell you one thing, doing my research... It, the horror of it is relentless. And there, this guy had no redeeming qualities, none whatsoever. He was a psychopath. And the horror of that is just awful, awful. So, yeah, it was a quite intense story, but extraordinary all the same. And I'm looking forward to seeing what you come up with and what that story or and how that story inspired you to come up with an idea for a garden. 
So next week, I'm going to well, I'm going to tell you about the design the, and the the process of designing something like that, what you go through, and you know what it's like working with the National Trust for a project like this. Dirt is a Go Loud original podcast. It drops first on the Go Loud app and wherever else you get your podcasts every single Monday. And Paul, we're going to be on the radio. We'll be on News Talk. <laughs> Uh, we are we're going to be on the radio every Sunday night at 8 o'clock they're going to take they're putting us Sunday nights yeah at 8 o'clock indeed who listens to the radio on Sunday where what station everybody who travels back from visiting their outlaws in-laws and ex-laws on a Sunday evening will be listening to News Talk at 8 o'clock in the evening and we're going to pick the best of Dirt's episodes and put them there together for the next 8 weeks I think can't wait see you next week on Dirt (laughs) 